Hello. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this time that we have to spend together. Thank you for the ability to come before you and to worship you. I pray that you would bless this time, that you would give us ears to hear your word. Give us the courage to believe what is true. Bless this time. In your name I pray. Amen. All right. So I never wanted to be a pastor. And it's probably not the best way to start a sermon. But I didn't want to be a pastor. Um, when I was 16, we, uh, my parents were missionaries in Mexico. And when I was 16, we started a new church. And I was, I played music, and for, I played music there for like five years, um, and I got, I was in a, a Bible study with the pastor, and the pastor started to tell me pretty early on, uh, you should be a pastor. And I'd say no, and then he'd say, you should be a pastor, and I'd say no. And, and it would go on, it went on like that for like five years. What I wanted to do was I always wanted to work in the church. I always wanted to be involved in ministry. And, and, uh, but I, what I, the way I thought I would do it is that I would be a, a teacher. Because in my eyes, teachers had all this time off. I'm very sorry to all the teachers in the room who we should pay more. Because they don't have a lot of time off. See, I thought, okay, so I'll be a band teacher or I'll be a math teacher and... And then I'll have my weekends free. I won't have anything to do, and I can go to church. And, and then I'll have my summers off, and I can lead uh, uh, like uh, missions trips and stuff like that. When I was 21, God changed my life. I was 21. I'm just going to emphasize that because it's important in this story. I was 21, all right? Got it. My friend um, called me up. He was 22, all right? 22, very mature. Um, he had been married uh, for, he, had got, he was married when he was 19. I was in his wedding. Um, he'd been married for three years. He was in Michigan, and I was here in Tucson, and I was fed up with Tucson, and I wanted to get out. He called me. He said, I'm moving to Texas. I'm going to go pastor a church in Texas, and I need a friend to go with me. Do you want to come? And I said, sure, anything to get me out of Tucson, because I didn't want to be here. That's the other piece of this, is I didn't want to be in Tucson. I didn't want to be a pastor. I didn't want to live in Tucson. We're off on a great foot here. So I went to Texas. My friend moved out there first, and then I moved out there. Or I went to visit, sorry. I went to visit, and the week that I went to visit, it just so happened that the guy who was the leader over the churches in the area was visiting. And he lived in Illinois. He was visiting that week. And they picked me up from the airport, and we went and visited the church. 
And then we went to Waffle House. And we're sitting in Waffle House, and he looks across the table at me and says, we're going to assign you to the church um, as an associate pastor here. I worked at Starbucks. I just wanted to get out of Tucson. So here comes my friend. He's 22. I'm 21. He's the lead pastor. I'm the associate pastor. There were two other associate pastors. And we had, both of us, never met anyone who went to the church. No one. Can you imagine if, like, Eric left and I left and Rod left, and then they brought some kid from Washington, and they were like, okay, here's, here's your new pastor. None of you have ever met him. He's 22. I'm really sorry for all, the, all of you who are younger than 22. I'm not trying to pick on you, I promise. But I should not have been an associate pastor at that church. Can someone get me my water? It's on the couch. I should not have been an associate pastor at that church. Thanks, man. In that Waffle House, God changed my life. I was given authority... But that authority didn't come with any power. I went to that church. I preached at that church. I played music at that church. I led the youth group. Um, I had impact on that church because I was there, but it was awful. It went really poorly. And I think of it now as my time. Um, so David, we're going to get to Luke, I promise. David, King David... Uh, when he was, uh, he was young, he was a warrior, he was a musician, and Samuel comes to him and says, you're going to be king. And Saul's still king. And so for several years, Luke has been anointed king, but he can't do anything about it. And he's actually pursued by Saul, and Saul tries to kill him. David, did I say, what did I say? I said Luke. See, I got... I got switched back to Luke. David. So David is anointed king, but he can't be king yet. That's what I think of my time in Texas now as God anointed me and said, you're going to be a pastor. Um, and then it was awful. And I came here, I came to the village soon after coming back from Texas. And it all, it ended very poorly, which was predictable. It, it ended very poorly in a very not fun, not laughing way. It was awful. And I came here, and Eric would ask me, I'd have these conversations with Eric, and he'd say, so tell me about Texas. What did you think of Texas? I'd say, it was great. It was great, man. It was really good. He'd say, well, every story you've told me sounds awful. Why do you keep saying it's great? And I can tell you now that it was awful. But God, in a Waffle House, set me on a path. 
and gave me authority and said, you are going to be a pastor. We're going to talk about authority today. We're going through Luke chapter 7 and 8. And the truth is, none of us want to talk about authority. We don't want to talk about authority. We don't want to talk about submission because we don't like them. They're not, they're not fun words, especially in our culture. We don't want to submit to people. We don't want to acknowledge authority. Some of us have experienced in the military. Some of us have experienced in very uh, hierarchical uh, business structures, very layered, leveled business structures. Um, I have a friend who lives in D.C., and she was out at a bar with another friend who works for the State Department. And someone else came up who works for the State Department, and they had an incomprehensible conversation to find out whether, like, what they could, whether or not they could talk to each other, whether or not they could engage with each other in a bar. And my friend just stood there and didn't understand any of it. And then they started having a conversation. We don't like talking about authority. We don't like talking about structures. But we're going to. We are in Luke chapter 7 and chapter 8 today. And there's two stories that we're going to really talk about. We'll kind of give an overview of what happens in the rest, of the, the rest of the chapters. But there's two stories that really stand out to me. And the first one is um, at the beginning of chapter 7. It says, when Jesus had finished saying all this, if you want to know what he said, saying when it says saying all this, you can go back and listen to David's sermon from last week because it was really good and you should listen to it. Um, it's just a plug for my brother's sermon. It was very good and you should listen to it. It's all the stuff that Jesus said. So when Jesus had finished saying all this, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There... A centurion servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. So here's a centurion. A centurion is is a Roman soldier who's over a hundred men. He commands a hundred men. He probably commanded the garrison. In, in Capernaum, he would have been a very powerful man. And I think there's a problem here. So it says that he sent the elders to go get Jesus to come to him. But I don't think that's what happened. See, he had heard about Jesus, and it says, and we find out later that he, he didn't consider himself worthy to go to Jesus himself. I don't think he sent the elders to go to Jesus, I think he said, hey, I've heard about this guy. Might he be able to heal my servant? And they went off to find Jesus and bring him. Um, It says, "When, when they came to Jesus, the elders of the Jews, they pleaded earnestly, earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. 
That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. So here's this centurion. He's probably not from there. He's from somewhere else. And in this city, he's found a people that he likes. He's found a, the, the, the Jewish people in the city, and, and he loves them, and he's built their synagogue. And this is a really good ally, right? Julie t- this morning talked about Pax Romana and, and how it wasn't really a, a peace. It was a violent peace. It was peace by, by s- submission, um, and the, 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 the centurions, the leaders in different cities would have been relatively brutal. But this man had found people who he loved. And he had built their synagogue. And they didn't want to lose that. So they rush off to find Jesus and to send him to heal this servant. And the centurion... See, the centurion understands authority. He understands what it means to have authority. He understands what it means to be under someone. He understands what it means when he says, go do this, that person goes to do this. And he understood Jesus. He had heard the stories. He had heard what Jesus was doing, and he had seen it and was familiar with it. It it struck him as familiar. This was something that he understood. Jesus says, Go, and people go. Jesus says, come, and people come. Jesus says, be healed, and they are healed. He understands that when Jesus says, you are forgiven, the people were forgiven. The centurion understands authority. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. Turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such a great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. So our series so far has been about this idea of the revolution of the ordinary. And the thing that we've been saying is that that when the divine meets the ordinary, things change. When the divine meets the ordinary, the ordinary cannot stay ordinary. It cannot stay the same. It has to change. When God meets his creation, when Jesus comes into this world, everything changes. And it causes turmoil. And I guarantee you, these elders who really just wanted to, they're like, this guy watches out for us. He built our synagogue. there was some turmoil in them when Jesus said, I have not found such a great faith even in Israel. So the centurion understands that Jesus has authority and responds to it and knows that if Jesus says your servant is healed, it's not, it doesn't require, Jesus doesn't require proximity. He doesn't need to be close to the servant to tell him that he is healed. And we see this authority, Jesus' authority, played out 
in a lot of these stories in chapter 7. And so if we go on and we look at some of the other stories, we find um, Jesus going to a different town, and as they're approaching the town, um, there's a, a funeral procession. And it's a widow's son who has died. And he goes and he raises the widow's son. He has compassion on, on the widow. And he exercises his authority over death. And then he has this conversation with John, John the Baptist's disciples. So John the Baptist uh, was the guy who came before Jesus. He was his cousin, and he, he announced that Jesus was coming. And they go to ask Jesus if he's the one who was to come, if, he was, if he's the Messiah, essentially. And Jesus, in all his authority, says, yes, I am the one. And he says it by proclaiming that John the Baptist, by lifting up what John the Baptist had done. He says, John the Baptist is the voice of one calling in the desert. He says, this is the one about John the Baptist. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. And then John is at the house of a Pharisee and a woman washes his feet with her, te- with her tears. Jesus, is it, did I say John? Man, I'm, I'm getting all my words mixed up today. Jesus is at the house of a Pharisee and a, a woman washes, a sinful woman washes his feet with her hair and pours perfume on his feet. And if you want to hear more about that sermon, or about that, about that passage, you should listen to Julie's sermon from this morning. It was very good and very powerful. You should listen to it. But Jesus tells her that her sins are forgiven. And he has this conversation about if someone is forgiven little and one person is forgiven much, who will love his master more. And then in chapter 8, Jesus' authority is shown um, in the passage that we read, that Kevin read, his authority over nature, where they're out on a boat and the storm comes up and the disciples are afraid and he says, be still and the sea is still and the storm stops. And then he turns to the disciples and says, where is your faith? And then, so Jesus exercises authority over the natural world and then he exercises authority over the spiritual world and he goes and they go across the lake and there's, that's when the storm, they go across the lake and there's a big storm. And then they get to the other side and there's a man, um, a demon-possessed man, and he casts out the demons and the man sits at Jesus' feet 
and the people of the town are amazed at what he had done. And then we come to the end of chapter 8. And the end of chapter 8 is, these are the two stories. The, the faith of the centurion and the end of chapter 8 are, are come up against each other and really clash. Because a very similar thing happens. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his, on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, the people are crowding and pressing around against you. Jesus, but Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Now imagine being Jairus at this, at this point. Jairus, Jairus. Imagine being Jairus at this point. You've gone, your daughter is dying, your 12-year-old daughter is dying. You go to Jesus, you, you hear that he's in town. This is it. This is the thing that's going to that's gonna save it, that's going to make it okay. And he, he runs off, he finds Jesus, he tells him what's happening, and the crowds are pressing around him. It's hard to move through the streets, and they're walking along, and he's leading him to his house, going as fast as he can, and all of a sudden Jesus stops. He stops and asks, who touched me? The, the crowd's pressing in on him. And he says, who touched me? And everyone's denying it. And, and Jairus is there bouncing up and down going, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go. And everyone, everyone's touching you, Jesus. Let's go. And he stops to heal this woman. This is a leader of the synagogue. And the, the man who's going to heal his daughter stops because someone who is unclean touched him. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, 
Don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. So Jesus is in Capernaum and these Jewish leaders come to him and they say this centurion needs his servant to be healed. And he goes and on his way he is stopped. And the reason he stopped is the centurion doesn't want him to come to his house. He understands authority. And he says, you can heal him without coming here. Then, he's in this other city. I can't remember where it is. And the, the leader of one of the leaders in the synagogue comes to him and says, my daughter is dying. And he goes, and on his way, he stops to heal someone else and has a conversation and talks to her and says, you're forgiven. And while they're stopped, his, his daughter dies. And Jesus says, don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. When they arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. And here's, here's where this story clashes with the faith of the centurion. They laughed at him knowing she was dead. They laughed at him knowing she was dead. We hold the faith of the centurion, who's a Roman soldier, who knew nothing of the Jews before coming to Capernaum, or if he knew about them, he didn't understand them, or if he understood them, he found something there and loved them and cared for them and built their synagogue. And he understands the authority of Jesus. And then you have the mourners, the laughter of the mourners. Now, I can't speak to what their sense of humor was or anything like that, but I would imagine this is a derisive laughter. Like, you don't know what you're talking about. She's dead. We know she's dead. We know how to tell what a dead person is. She's dead. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. This is the point in 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 my sermon where I think a lot of us would go to uh, do you believe that Jesus has authority? Do you believe that Jesus has authority? In it's a good question. But I'm I'm not going to ask that question because here's the answer. Yes. He does. The truth is, he does. Jesus has authority. He has authority in your life. He has authority over the natural world. He has authority over the spiritual world. He has authority. That is what is true. So we're not going to ask, 
does Jesus have authority? What I want to ask you now is, we're talking about the revolution of the ordinary, and the divine meeting the ordinary. How would your life change if you submitted to the authority of Jesus? How would your life be different? How would your life be impacted by the divine if you submitted your life to Jesus? And I say this knowing that last week, last week we went through Luke chapter 6 and all the things that Jesus tells people to do and all the things that he says are true about the kingdom of God. And David spoke for all of us when he said, I don't know how to preach on this because I don't live this way. So this isn't for this isn't for those of you who don't believe in Jesus. This is for all of us. What would it look like? How would your life be different? How would your life change if you submitted your life to Jesus? To the authority of Jesus. And a lot of us are afraid. We're afraid to do that because we don't want to be under someone else's authority. We don't want to be under the authority of anyone. If we had our way, we would be the boss who doesn't have to do any work and just gets a check every month and other people do the work under us. That's what we would want. We don't want anyone above us. And we're afraid because we look at chapter 6 and we say, we can't live this way. I can't live up to this. And here's the truth, is that you can't. And that's why when we look at this story, when we look at what has happened in chapter 7 and chapter 8, we see the way Jesus responds to people in his authority. And he responds, we've been singing this song a lot lately, Psalm 145. He responds as the psalm, as David tells us in the Psalms. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All you have made will, all you have made will praise you, O Lord. Your saints will extol you. They will tell of your glory, of the glory of your kingdom, and speak of your might, so that all men may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. Jesus sees the widow and has compassion on her. Her son's life doesn't get any easier. He still has to get up and work. Her life probably didn't get any easier either. 
he still had to get up and work and care for her. He has compassion on the woman who washed his feet. Even though he should have pushed her away, he should have, according to the law, not allowed her to be with him, not allowed her to touch her. He has compassion on her. In, at the beginning of chapter 8, the passage that I didn't read says, um, the twelve were with him and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the son of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. He has compassion on, on women and has them be part of his ministry. He has compassion on the man who has been cast out of society, who is living alone and raging because of the demons. And in the middle of a walk to a girl who's dying, he has compassion on a woman who has been suffering. To live under the authority of Jesus is to live under a compassionate and gracious God. So how would your life be changed if you were to submit your life to the authority of Jesus? And the answer is, it would change a lot. You would be called to difficult things. You would be called to hard conversations. You would be called to give up things. I've been asking myself a lot the last few days especially, what would it look like? How would my life change? So I got up this morning and I did 10 push-ups and rode my stationary bike. Because I believe that God is calling me to... Uh, What's the word? To be to a good steward of my body? I believe that. That's not all I long to change. It's not all I want to step into. But it is something that I did this morning, that I plan to do tomorrow morning, and that you can all ask me about. And I'd invite you to. Because part of living under the authority of Jesus, part of living under a compassionate and caring and gracious God is getting to be in community with all of you and getting to be encouraged and pushed on towards Jesus by all of you. When I was in Texas, everything fell apart. It all broke down. partly because I didn't have any power there. I was given authority, and with very good reason, they did not listen to me. But God has walked faithfully next to me and cared for me and brought me along to where I am now. 
And I believe he is calling me to further submit my life to him. So how would your life change if you submitted your life to the authority of Jesus Christ? And I don't have any questions. I don't have any time for questions. I'm very sorry. Um, I'm going to pray. Jesus, I thank you I thank you for your word. I thank you that we get to read about what you did, that we get to hear your words spoken. I thank you that you have authority in my life. You have authority in our lives. I pray that you would lead me um, in seeking you first and lead me um, in being willing to have my life changed because of your compassion, because of your grace. I pray that you would bless this time of worship. In your name I pray. Amen.